Great. Thank you, Irina and Graham. Well, good morning. It is wonderful uh, to be with you again this morning. And this morning, we are in the final part of a series we're doing called The Church That Jesus Is Building. And we've looked over the last three or four weeks at uh, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it labor in vain. We've looked at Isaiah 66. God says, these are the people that I will pour my favor on. Those who are humble and contrite and take my word seriously. And we've looked at Psalm 115. Not to us, O God. Not to us, but to your name, give the glory. And so for the last three weeks, sorry, is this all right? It feels, you guys all right? Okay. So for the last three weeks, we've been looking at the fact that this church, Watermark Church, has to be a church which Christ is front and central at. This cannot be a church which is built on human wisdom or human brilliance or uh, human ingenuity. This must be a church in which Christ, by the power of His Spirit, is at work. And we do that by building this church on the Word of God and building it for His glory. And so that's where we've been over the last few weeks. But now the question remains... What happens when things don't go the way that we want them to? What happens when, as a church, we say we're going to build healthily? We're going to build on God's Word. What happens when God says, I will glorify my name, but not in the way that you expect me to? What happens when life doesn't always turn out the way we think it should? A loved one passes away. When it seems like you might be retrenched, when your child is diagnosed with a debilitating sickness. What happens when it seems like God has forgotten us? Friends, the answer is, and this is true for us as individuals, but also as a church. The answer is we remind ourselves of who this God is that we love and worship. And so today I want to bring to a conclusion this series by asking the question, who is this God that is head of his church? Every god in the ancient world, every culture had their gods, every city had their religion, every, every god, every culture had their idols that they worshipped and bowed down before. But who is this god we've been speaking about? What makes him unique? And secondly, should we trust him? Can we trust him? And so today we get to look at Isaiah chapter 46. And, um, and we're going to learn three things about this god of the Bible the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to learn that He's the God who carries and cares. He's the God who knows and governs all things. And He's the God who redeems by His sovereign grace. Okay? So let's dive into the Scriptures. Firstly, He's the God who carries and cares. Now, the Scripture that Graham and Irina read to us, let me set some of the context for this. The people of God, the nation of Israel, Uh, had gone into Babylon as exiles. God had spoken to them, and they, uh, because of their sin and their rebellion, eventually God brought the Babylonians, which is this world superpower, up to the northeast of where Israel was. And the Babylonians had come and conquered them and taken them as exiles back to Babylon. And so they are there in Babylon uh, as the people of God as exiles. Now, In Babylonian mythology, there were many gods, but there were two main gods. The one was called Bel, or Bel-Marduk. And in Babylonian mythology, his son was called Nebo. And Nebo 
was the patron of the arts, the patron of writing uh, and speech. And his job in Babylonian mythology was to write on the tablets of destiny your fate for the coming year. And so the gods would take counsel together, and then Nebo would, would write your destiny, whether you would have a good year or a bad year. It was his job to write on the tablets of destiny your fate for the coming year. And so if you were to have a good year, a good harvest, a good year in business, if your family was to be blessed, it was because these gods, Bel and Nebo, had looked upon you favorably. And so what you had to do is you had to please the gods, and then they would please you. And now, there were many ways to do this, but one of the main ways that they did this was every year at New Year, the people of Babylon would go to the outer parts of the city, and there were these massive statues of Bel and Nebo. They would take them off their place, uh, carry them down the hill, put them on carts that had been constructed, and then the oxen would carry these statues of the gods through the streets to a central shrine in the city of the center where everybody would burn incense and worship and bow down before these gods and elicit their favor. And so they would... Uh, do this hoping to secure a favor for the coming year. Now the people of God, the nation of Israel, are in Babylon. They've been taken there. And when they first went to Babylon, they thought, God's just letting off some steam. We, we know God's a bit upset because we haven't really been listening. But two or three years, we'll be here, and then God will send us back to Israel. God's not that angry with our sin. We'll just be here a short while, and then we're going to go back. And God said, no, 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 70 years you'll be in Babylon. And so after two or three years, the people thought, any day now, God's going to rescue us. He's going to send us back. And then five years came, 10 years came, 30 years came. And eventually the people of God started to wonder, is God ever going to rescue us? Has God forgotten us? Where is this God who's promised to be faithful? And the temptation for the people of God may have been to Keep their options open. Yeah, we'll worship God. We'll worship Yahweh. But maybe we should also just worship the Babylonian gods. Maybe we should keep our options open. We should hedge our bets. Maybe these gods will look favorably upon us as well. And of course, the people of God, they knew they ought to worship God of the Bible, Yahweh. But, but they thought maybe God's forgotten us. Maybe a little sacrifice here and there won't, won't hurt anyone. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, yeah, I, I know the God of the Bible, but maybe I should just hedge my bets. Maybe if I just trust this thing to secure a good future for me, then I can really rest safe at night. I can sleep well at night. The Bible and God plus my savings account. This plus my boss's favor. This plus just being a little sketchy on my tax returns. You know what God has said? You're not denying him, but you presented with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to secure your future. You ever felt like that? I know I have. Now, as 21st century Hong Kongers, we may be tempted to mock these primitive gods, and we think, oh, nobody worships you know, gods like that these days. I mean, honestly, we are educated, we've been to business school, we've got our MBA, that's, that's very primitive. But actually, if we're honest, our culture and our lives 
are full of such gods all around us, aren't they? They may not be standing upright in our houses. Maybe we don't physically sing and dance before them or burn incense to them. But all around us in our lives, there are things that we hope in, things that we trust in to make our lives meaningful, to make our lives purposeful, things that we hope will guarantee us a secure and stable future. And they're things that we, we still dance to their tune. Do you know that expression? We still march to their beat. They're things that, that own us and control us, and we feel like we need to obey them in order to have a secure uh, and comfortable future. And things that, just like the worshippers of Bel and Nebo, we hope will write favorably upon the tablets of destiny, our fate. And yet these things that we hope will carry us into prosperity and fruitfulness become burdens which we end up carrying and and ultimately they end up owning us. Look at what happens in verse 1 here. God says, Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are in beasts and are livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down, but they cannot save the burden." They themselves go into captivity. I remember a few years ago, the church, I was involved in leading a a campus of a church in Cape Town. And it was a a season of wonderful fruitfulness. Everything was going right. The church was growing. New leaders were being added. People were coming to Christ. New people were getting baptized. Everything was going well. There was such momentum in the church. And it was so exciting. And one of the older men in my life, a really wise man, said to me, Kevin, enjoy the momentum while it lasts, but make sure it's your servant, not your master. And at the time, I didn't know what he meant. What's he saying? But actually, about a year later, that season came to an end, and it was just hard work. Everything was hard work. There weren't leaders coming through. People weren't joining. It felt like everything we did took twice the effort. And I realized what he was saying. He was saying, the season that you're in, don't let it control you. Don't let it own you. Make sure that this doesn't become a burden that you end up carrying. Because this thing that you hope and trust in, ultimately you end up carrying it. It becomes a burden on your shoulders. The things that you hope to carry you into a secure and stable future, ultimately you end up carrying yourself. And we all know what that's like, don't we? Who of us here haven't put our hope or our confidence in something only for it to become a burden which we end up carrying? A business degree, that new promotion, that car that we really thought was going to set us apart, our children's education. Things that we hoped were going to carry us into a safe future end up owning us, controlling us. We end up carrying them as a burden on our shoulders. But look at the invitation of God here. Look what he says in verse 5. He invites us to compare himself to these things that we hope and trust in. He says, to whom will you liken me or make me equal? Compare me that we may be alike. God actually says he invites us to compare himself to these gods that we put our hope and trust in. And verse 3 tells us, what is he like? He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, you who have been born by me. From before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. Friends, I wonder how many of us here today feel like we've got to the end of ourselves. Feel like you don't know where to turn. 
feel empty and alone. You feel anxious. You feel desperate. You feel exhausted. And the prevailing gods of our culture, the things of our culture that are inviting us to come and hope and trust in them, things that promise a safe and stable and secure future, things imploring us to trust them and to take our problems away. Friends, Jesus Christ says that if you look to these things, they promise to carry you, but in the end, you will carry them. There'll be a burden on your back. But friends, the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the only one who says, come to me and surrender. Come to me and give me everything. Uh, he asked you to take up his cross, but then he unashamedly says that you need to give him everything. But if you do that, he is the one who will carry you. Look what he says here. He says, you've been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. Listen to me, a house of Jacob. I will carry you. Over the last six weeks as we've moved to Hong Kong, there have been a number of times where in the quiet of my own heart, I have, if I'm honest with myself, I felt like, God, I don't know if I can do this. I've come to the end of myself. And uh, I felt like God this week just encouraging me from the scripture. Kevin, I'm the one who carries you. I've carried you from your mother's womb. I've carried you all those times when you weren't even aware of me, where you didn't even, even know me. I was carrying you from the womb to the end of your days. I am the one who carries you. Friends, do you feel like that? You feel like these burdens are overwhelming. God says, I am the one who carries you. You can trust in me. For those of you that are in high school, the world tells you, you're the master of your fate. You're the captain of your destiny. The world is your oyster. You can do anything you want and be anything you want. Just dance to this tune. Just follow our rules. Just trust in this thing and you will have a prosperous life. Friends, it's a lie. Those burdens you'll end up carrying and they will enslave you and ultimately they'll own you. Friends, in Jesus Christ, he invites us to come to him, to let our lives be carried by him. Christ says, I've borne you from the womb to your old age, carried you to your gray hairs. Don't you realize the day you were conceived in your mother's womb, every moment you've been alive, every moment has been in his hands. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, you who have been born by me, even to your old age, I'm the one who carries you. I will bear you and I will save. Friends, why should we trust this God of the Bible? Why should we trust the Lord Jesus Christ? When, when things don't go the way we expected, when we end up in Babylon and we don't know where to turn, why should we trust him? Because he's the one who says, I will carry you. You can trust me. He's the God who knows. He's the God who cares. He's the God who carries. Secondly, he's the God who knows and governs all things. Look at verse 8 with me. God says this, remember this and stand firm. Recall it, transgressors. Remember the former things. I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall, shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Friends, the thing that differentiates the one true God of the Bible from every other religion, every other false God, is not the dedication of his worshipers, not the size of his temple, but simply who he is. He is God and there is no other. He's not just one of a plethora of options of gods. He's not just slightly stronger, slightly more powerful 
more faithful than other religions. He is unique from every other God because he's the one true God, because he is sovereign, which means that he is supremely authoritative. There is no one else but him. If English is your second or your third or maybe your fourth language, there's a really good Bible word you need to learn. It's the word sovereign. God is sovereign, which means that he is supremely authoritative. There is nobody that has greater authority than him. There's a wonderful story in the Bible, the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is having a conversation with the king of Babylon. So Daniel is a Jewish man, and he got taken to Babylon with the exiles at, as a teenager, around 16, 17 years old. He goes to Babylon, and he serves the king of Babylon. And the first king of Babylon is a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is named after Nebo, the Babylonian god. And then his son, called Belshazzar, named after Bel, becomes king after him. And so many years after Daniel's been taken to Babylon, he's having a conversation with the king, Belshazzar, about the first king, his father, called Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what he says. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that God gave him, all peoples, all nations, all languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. So he's saying, he's saying, remember your father Nebuchadnezzar. He was the most powerful man of the most powerful empire in the whole world. There was nobody on the face of the planet more powerful than your dad. If he wanted somebody killed, it was as good as dead. If he wanted them kept alive, he just said the word. Nobody had more power than your father, the king of Babylon. But then look at the very next line. He says, But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he became proud, he was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel saying, Even the most powerful man of the most powerful empire in the whole world is still subject to the sovereign God. There is one God, and there's no one and nothing like him. Friends, what does this mean for your boss? What does this mean for social media, those of us that are in high school? What does this mean for the voice of our family members? These voices that, that seek to control us and own us, there is a God that is above even the most highest supreme authority in our lives. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. And friends, the temptation for us as a church and as individuals is to run to all sorts of false gods, things that, that promise us the world, things that promise us this is how to grow your church, this is how to have a stable and secure future, this is how to become prosperous, this is how to make things work. And yet we forget that our lives and our church is actually in the hands of the sovereign God. There is one God and there's no one like him. Now, look at this passage. This passage tells us two things about God's sovereignty. There's two things that make God sovereign. The first thing is that God knows everything. Look what he says here in verse 9. He says, Remember the former things. I am God, there is no other. I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. 
Remember, the Babylonian gods, Bel and Nebo, they were the ones who were meant to write a favorable future for you. They were the ones that were meant to secure that this coming year you had a good year. And isn't that exactly what everything we hope and we trust in promises us? It's exactly what the gods we trust in, whether they are ancient or whether they are modern, whether we are religious or whether we are secular. All of us look to something to secure a stable and a promising future for us, whether it's our savings account, our education, a certain relationship, maybe that job opportunity. But look at what God says. He says, I am God, there is no other. There is none like me. Why? What makes the God of the Bible unique? Why should we trust him? Because truly I know the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Friends, I'm not sure what is troubling you today. What it is that keeps you awake at night. And I'm not saying that those are illegitimate fears. Maybe they are legitimate. But there is one who knows all things. He knows how it's going to turn out and he invites you to trust him. God says the same thing in Isaiah 44. He says, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare what is to come and what's going to happen in the future. Then he says, fear not, be not afraid. Have I not told you from old? Have I not declared it? Is there a God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not any other. Friends, whether God is calling you to move to another country for the sake of the gospel, like Graham in Arena, whether God is asking you to start a new business, or to leave a business, to join a ministry, or to start some new ministry, or whether you're worried about whether you, where your children are going to go to school, or whether you're going to have children, there is nothing in all the world that's going to happen next week, or next year, or in a million years from now that is outside of the knowledge of the sovereign God. I declare the end from the beginning. I know all things. This is the God that we love and trust. Friends, this God knows what's going to happen to Hong Kong in 30 years' time. He knows where you're going to stay in the years to come, even if you don't. He knows how you're going to get through this year financially. He knows when the next financial crash is going to happen. He knows if and when you're going to have children. He knows about that bad medical report that maybe you, haven't, you don't even know about yet, but you might receive into the future. He knows about that phone call that's going to rock your world. Friends, he even knows about the mistakes that we're going to make that are going to humble us. And he's not worried about any of it, because none of it will catch him unaware. He's the God who knows all things. But secondly, not only does God know all things, he actually governs all things. Look at verse 11 with me. God says this. He says, I am God, there is no other. I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purposes. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. What's God talking about here? Remember, Babylon is the world superpower of the age, the most powerful nation in the world at the time that this is being written. And God has told his people, because of your sin, because of your rebellion, because of your disobedience, I will bring the Babylonians, they will uh, capture you, they will tear down Israel, they will take you as exiles back into Babylon. But God said, you will only be there 70 years. 70 years you'll be in Babylon, and then I will set you free. 
And uh, in the preceding chapter, in Isaiah 45, God actually names the person that's going to come to Babylon to set the people of God free. Look what he says. He says, he calls him Cyrus. He says, thus is the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've taken hold of, to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of kings. Cyrus is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all of my promises. So God says, there is going to be a man called Cyrus. Cyrus, my shepherd, my anointed one. He is going to come and set you free and bring you back from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He will shepherd you from captivity back to the promised land. And that's exactly what happened. After 70 years and 538 BC, a Persian king arises. His name happens to be Cyrus, and he overthrows the Babylonians, and he becomes the king of the world's superpower. And after a year, he says, well, I don't have any reason for these Jews to stay in Persia and Babylon. Let's send them back to Jerusalem. And so God raises up Cyrus, and he sends, uh, Cyrus sends the people back to Israel, and he sets them free to rebuild the temple and to worship Yahweh. The only thing is, this is written 150 years before Cyrus is even born. There's no king of Persia called Cyrus when this is written. How did Isaiah know that God was going to raise up a man called Cyrus to set God's people free? How did he know? Friends, God says this, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel, the sovereign God, will stand and I will accomplish my purposes. I call a bird of prey from the east, that's Cyrus, a man who will do my bidding. Friends, I want to impress upon us the fact that the God of the Bible, the God that we've been speaking about these last few weeks, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who builds his church, the God who says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I want us to know that this God is not just slightly better slightly more powerful, slightly stronger than the prevailing gods of our culture. Because we are made in God's image, sometimes we think that God is a slightly better version of ourselves. But He is God and there's none like Him. He's the sovereign Lord of all and we can trust Him. The God of the Scriptures invites us to trust Him and to bank our lives on Him and to build this church on Him and on His wisdom, not on our own. Friends, I want us to know that the God of the Scriptures is the one true God who brought everything into being. The one who holds all things and sustains all things and governs all things. The one who knows the end from the beginning and therefore we can trust Him. You can bank your life on Him. You can bank your life on Him. As the old hymn says, in Christ the solid ground I stand all other ground is sinking sand. What a mark I want to ask us, I want to urge us as a community can we bank our lives as individuals? Can we build this church on this God, on the sovereign God? Can we trust Him with our future? And can we listen and obey Him because we know that He knows all things and He governs and sustains all things? He is the sovereign God and there is none like Him. Why should we trust Him? He's the one true God who knows all things. He cares and He carries. He knows and He governs all things. Third thing is this. Why should we trust Him? He's the God who saves through sovereign grace. Now, it's one thing for God to be sovereign over all the world, totally in control, but is He nice? It's one thing for Him to be in control, but is He kind? 
history hasn't always looked well favorably upon monarchs and dictators that were in control, but they weren't kind or merciful. Is this God good? Can we trust him? We spoke earlier about the fact that God delivered his people from slavery, from being in exile, by this King Cyrus. And Cyrus was the most unlikely source. Nobody expected it. Babylon was this world superpower. They thought that they were going to rule for a thousand years. And almost out of nowhere, God raises this man Cyrus, and he comes and he sets his people free. But it was the most unlikely of sources. He was the most unlikely of deliverers. But as you read the story of God's people in the scriptures, one of the things that we quickly learn is that the biggest problem God's people face is actually no external army. It's not the Babylonians or the Persians or the Egyptians. The biggest enemy that God's people face is where? It's internal. It's the battle of their hearts. In fact, the biggest battle that Israel ever fought was not on some battlefield in the Middle East. It was actually the battle that was raging in their own hearts. Would they trust God? Would they listen to Him? Would they obey Him? The Israelites thought that they were enslaved by the Babylonians, but actually they were slaves to their own sin. They were slaves to their own self-sufficiency, to their own self-righteousness, to the stubbornness of their own hearts. Remember verse 8 says this. It says, remember this. Call it to mind, you transgressors. Verse 12 says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. God's not speaking about the Babylonians here. He's speaking about his own people. His own people are stubborn of heart. They are far from righteousness. And friends, this is still the biggest battle that God's people face. Watermark, into the future, the biggest battle, the biggest challenge that we're going to face, the biggest I guess challenges that we're going to have are not going to be from some government persecution. It's not going to be from some political party. It's not going to be from some other religion that you know, wants to stamp out Christianity. It's not going to be from anyone that opposes the gospel. The biggest battle we're going to have to face is the battle of our hearts. Will we trust Christ? Will we love him supremely? And the biggest battle which we're going to need to wage is the same battle the people of God have always had to fight. What are we hoping in? What are we trusting in? What God are we banking our lives on? You see, this is the real battle we face. This is the real enemy. But even in this, God is not powerless. You might think God says, oh, well, it's a battle you've got to face, and I'll just let you decide. Even in this, God is not powerless. Look at what he says. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from my righteousness. I will bring my righteousness near. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will bring my salvation to you, to Zion, for Israel my glory. See, friends, the good news of the gospel is that God in his sovereign mercy sent Cyrus the shepherd, his chosen one, to rescue and redeem Israel. And so in the same way, God would one day send another shepherd, another anointed one, the ultimate deliverer, to rescue and redeem Israel. Not trapped in Babylon, not trapped in Egypt, not trapped in Persia, but slaves to their own sin. Slaves to their own stubborn hearts. Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, came to set us free from the battles that we wage. and To come and set us free from being slaves to sin. To carry the burden of our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness. And how would he do it? How would Jesus set us free? Well, Jesus, the good shepherd, said this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own 
accord. In his sovereignty, God sent a rescuer, the shepherd who would come not bearing a sword or shield, but come bearing a cross. God sent one who, who wouldn't come and lead an army of mighty men to destroy the enemy. He came to lead a bunch of very ordinary men and women, and he laid down his life. Friends, the Bible's greatest teaching about the sovereignty of God is that in his perfect knowledge, in his absolute control of all things, God sent his son, born as a baby in a manger, growing up in the backwaters of Israel, put on a sham mock trial by the people of Israel, sentenced to death for a crime that he didn't do, and yet all of it was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of the sovereign God. He didn't do it because Pontius Pilate was proudful. He didn't do it because the Jewish people were jealous of him. Jesus didn't die because anyone got the better of him or because he had, Pontius Pilate had a bad day at the office. He did it because God in his sovereignty was sending a rescuer, a savior, the ultimate shepherd to bring his people home. Because in his sovereignty, he chose to carry his people from captivity to freedom. But he did it first by carrying a cross, by bearing our sin upon himself. It is the only way that God could destroy our sin without destroying the people in which sin, sin dwelt. And so he went to the cross. And so in the words of that old hymn, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear his mocking, I hear my mocking voice call out amongst the scoffers. Why should I gain from his reward? Why I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Friends, though we all like God's people have gone away, gone astray, like all God's people before us. By nature, we are sinners. We are unrighteous and without merit. God's gracious gift is that he brings his righteousness near. He brings salvation to us. Though we are slaves to our sin, Christ says, I will come and deliver you. I will carry you. I've carried you from the grave, from the tomb to the grave, but I will carry you to my righteousness. God gives us a righteousness which is not our own, but it's given to us by grace if we simply believe him. Simply trust Him. Simply surrender. Simply repent of going our own way. Friends, none of us in this room know what the future holds, but we can know the one who holds the future. The future of this church, the future of our families, the future of all these things in the hands of the one true sovereign God, and He invites us to trust Him. We can trust Him because He's alive and real, because he hears our prayers and because he answers. We can trust him because he's the sovereign God over every aspect of creation, from the smallest molecule to the grandest galaxy. We can trust him because he's the one true God, who though being God did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and went to the cross for us. We can trust him because he's the one true God who's not only strong, but exceedingly gracious as well. I am God and there is none like me, says God, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purposes. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Let's pray together. Why don't you stand with me? Let's come before Christ and in prayer. Friends, just as I was preparing this 
last few days. It's just so weird that probably some of us here that do feel like we've come to the end of ourselves. Feel anxious and exhausted. Feel alone and weary. Just feel like God's word to us is, I am the God that carries you. Come to me. Jesus says, come and take my burden, take my yoke upon yourself. Come and follow me. Come and let me be Lord. Come and surrender. But then he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We find that Christ's burden is light when you come to him and surrender and say, Jesus, have your way. Friends, I wonder if we can repent of trusting in false gods to rescue and to secure a good future. I wonder if we can repent of hedging our bets, still serving God while we have a backup plan of the gods of our culture. Maybe some of us here, we need to ask him to help us to trust him. You say, God, I want to trust you more. Won't you help me? Holy Spirit, we need you to come and do a work in our hearts. We need you, God, to open our eyes to see you afresh. God, won't you help us to trust you supremely? God, this week, as we go into our week, and some of us are going to be traveling, and there's pressures at work. God, won't you help us not to trust in all the things that our culture is telling us will secure us a good future? Won't you help us to lift our eyes above those things to the one sovereign God who rules and reigns? Jesus, we bring our lives before you. Say, come and have your way. We trust you, God. We trust you with our church. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our children. of your way, God.